0: You are tuned into the constructionist podcast and tonight we are continuing our series on the bible what to believe and what to leave so at the constructionists we encourage a worldview that is built on the principles of christ and in this episode we're examining the stories that make no sense so for some of you we're ruining the bible and we're going over old testament and some new testament stories giving new perspectives that might go against what you've learned Maybe back in the flannel graph days of Sunday school. But by doing so, we hope to offer insights and perspectives that will help you through your journey towards a greater understanding of love and compassion for yourself and others. So we want to encourage you in tonight's episode that we're not fabricating anything, as many have done with the Bible, and we're just taking information and ideas that we've studied, and we're going to present those to you through an honest and authentic perspective in our examination. So this is our thinking space where we're just going over thoughts, some ideas, and tonight we're making our best attempt to explain practical theologies to live by. So if you enjoy the Constructionist Podcast and want to support us financially, please follow the link in the chat or show notes on the social media platform you are listening to and visit our give page so your support will enable us to continue producing high quality content like this but we want to interact with you We find it important and believe that our interaction and discussions with listeners, we can create and learn and grow together. We value feedback, we value your questions, we value your ideas. And so we are excited to build a community around what we call a communal hermeneutic. So please don't hesitate to reach out to us and let us know what you think. All right, Sherea and Jake, here we are again at the Bible what to leave or what to believe and what to leave. And tonight we are covering the stories that make no sense. So we are covering some stories that actually have been taught a certain way for a very long period of time um, that possibly many of us have just looked upon and just thought, oh, that's that old story again and just glossed over it. But in actuality, they make no sense when we look at them for what they are and just read them, maybe as a historical narrative or a historical factual story, we get confused. And in that confusion, uh, the Bible knows what the Bible's talking about, so we're not going to explore it, question it, think about it, or even want to know more about it. We're just going to forget about it. And so that's not what we want to do with the Bible. We want to cover and go over important topics and dive a little deeper. And so I would say that this is what this space and this time today tonight is all about. So we're going to cover Abraham and Sarah and and, uh, Hagar and Ishmael. We're going to cover stories like the Tower of Babel, Sodom and Gomorrah. We're going to look at the stories for what they are how they were written. We're gonna look at a little Hebrew tonight and hopefully get down to the bottom of making a little more sense of what these mean and what they're for. All right. So let's cover, let's start covering our first story, which is the Tower of Babel. And Sheree, you want to give us a quick summary quickly of mm-hmm. the Tower of Babel and and just explain what it is and what the bible says about it
1: yeah so the story occurs in genesis 11 um and the idea is that all the people of the earth are speaking one language at this time and they all decide that they're going to build the tallest tower they can to make a name for themselves um it even says so that they won't be dispersed over all the earth um the Lord comes down and sees the tower um, and sees what is possible for them and mixes up their languages. So they're not able to communicate. They're not able to continue building and they disperse. And that's the story.
0: All right. So let's start unpacking this because I think that this story culturally has been used and misused uh, for many, many years. Years, A lot of people think that multilingualism is the, I guess, the consequence or the curse of the Tower of Babel. And so therefore, there's been movements for a long period of time to try to curb that curse. There's been movements to try to go back to, well, since we are, quote, it was seen or perceived as a Christian nation. We're seen um, that way, that English is supposed to be pre-Babel, that, that our English is the superior language in the United States, and so therefore, everyone has to start reading and writing and speaking uh, the same language, English. This harkens back to some old presidents that have promoted this um, pre-World War I with Teddy Roosevelt promoted one language when he said that the country should be speaking the language of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, what those were written in. Um, That has kind of been a de facto type sentiment ever since, I think. Um, If you leap forward to some other decades in the past. Uh, when I grew up, there was a person by the name of Pat Buchanan that if you uh, if you look at his policies, where we become too lax on immigration or too lax on language integration, that we're becoming, quote, the Tower of Babel. Um, if you jump forward uh, in this quote, divine curse that people interpret this as, you'll see that people, oh, that back in like old English, not too old English days, but 1800s English days in in Europe, there was a very uh, negative view towards the foreigner, towards the other, all the way up until current day in many places, including ours. And if you fast forward to modern times, how that's grown is into very solidly present hate groups that definitely go around and perpetuate a Tower of Babel initiative where they're trying to pass acts before the House of Representatives and they're trying to affect the language or the culture, monoculture of today. Um, People claim lots of things. I don't know, Jake, if you have this picture, but of the Amazon headquarters in Virginia compared to the depiction of the Tower of Babel, um, that we see that art picture and this picture of the Amazon headquarters in Virginia are quote, the same building. And so the consequences of Amazon is is going to be the curse. Um, Some people call that the one world government, the one world culture, the one world whatever. So even the invasion of Ukraine and how the invasion of Ukraine went down and Putin's policies and such, uh, the collapse of the world, post covid 19 inflation all of these things that are 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 basically um said to be the consequence of the tower of of babel so if you don't think that the tower of babel affects today and our culture and our politics you got another thing coming i think because it does um affect things people's viewpoint affects things. The problem is, is I believe this story has nothing to do with a tower, has really nothing. It has something to do with Babylon a little bit, and really has nothing to do with multilingualism because Jake, a few verses before what sharia was talking about do you have those verses that talk about the several languages that they spoke
1: do you uh jake i think you're on mute but do you have do you want those verses in english or in hebrew
0: he, no uh, in english, english is great. it's fine
2: yeah um it's in ten i'm gonna
1: read one as an example. Yeah, it's in chapter 10, and it essentially has to do with um, Noah's three sons and their descendants. Um, So I'm going to read this about Ham's sons, and this verse basically occurs three. So verse 20 said, these are Ham's sons according to their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. So that happens with ham, that happens with shem, that happens with Japheth.
0: So we have languages plural that they already spoke yes. multiple languages or different languages in their tribal um lifestyle. So we know mm-hmm. that, that language it's it's hard it's a hard reach, it's a long reach to say that that this consequence of this um of this uh, story has to do with multilingualism. that's just that's just a perpetuation of people's xenophobia. They take this scripture and misappropriate it and they definitely use it for their own agendas and their own political maybe um advancement I mean if you if you look at just some history and if you look at just some basic, Mesopotamian history. It, it is it is related definitely to um, some concepts that were called basically one mouth. That would be what what it would be translated to. There was a concept called one mouth in ancient Mesopotamia. And when you speak of one mouth, that basically is an affront to the king. So that's a way of saying, that you are against the king or working against the king. And mm-hmm. so these inscriptions that they have in Mesopotamia being one lip or, or one, one mouth, it definitely attracts the idea of language where it's like, okay, well, this has got to be about language, but we see in the verses before that, it, that they already spoke different languages. So it can't be necessarily all Bible. about language. What? It's, about
2: the disbursement of language, it's, it's not about the scattering of the tribes or the disbursement of language, right? Unless the, the tower of Babel was put before
0: the genealogy right. of Noah, right? But that doesn't make sense either, no? So, if right, you look so at differently, you have to look at it differently than that. Go ahead. So,
1: Kevin, that. what I hear you saying is that this idea of being one-mouthed or one-lipped, it's almost like the idea of having one will, that all of It'd, the people are united against the king. It's like a coup. Against
0: the king. It'd be a coup. Yeah. Right. Right. It would be like so this. in inscriptions in Mesopotamia, they have inscriptions that this king is in control and, and this group is one-lipped, one-mouth, and they're going to overthrow the king. Mm-hmm.
1: So that means the Tower of Babel is a story about the people being united against God.
0: Right. So if you spiritualize the story, which is a spiritual story, um, and you look at the idea of being united, not one lipped against God, but if you are united with the chesed, which is the loving kindness that endures forever of God, that if you are the the un, you, you have unity with God, that's one thing, but if you're un, unified against God, then there will be an, a disbursement. And we see this in other uh, other locations where you see disbursement in the Noah story, you see disbursement in the Adam and Eve story, you see disbursement in different places. And, uh, and so this is just another story of disbursement. But going back to the, to the foundation of the story, it has more to do with being against, against God. That would be my argument with this story, um, where the, the, the way that it's written, I mean, you can basically lift this story right out of the Bible as a, as a singular story. A standalone story, but if you if you read it like in context with the other stories, you can see that it is like closely related with the same ideas. Mm -hmm. I would say.
2: Yeah, I think you have that idea. Then you have the idea of political satire in that Babel, where we get the word that we have for Babylon um and and the jewish people even had babel as babylon as well it's just a poke at who was um creating a mess at the time and so right. in ancient babylon they had all of these exilic people from all different nations coming into mesopotamia as slaves and workers to build their empire up and creating this really this linguistic mess as well that no one could communicate to each other, and so, so when you have when you have so many words pointing to the current situation, I think you have to stop and look at what what is actually being spoken, and it has nothing to do with with the post Noah dispersion, but
0: really what's happening in exile. Right. Trey, did you have another comment there?
1: Kind of. Um, I was trying to bring us back to where the authors were in the story, but Jake got there. Um, okay, good. So remember good. this is being written as the Israelites are in exile. So it's almost like right. they're telling Babylon's origin story from their perspective.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's an ancient text called the Sin of Sargon. And back in the day in those ancient times, you would have to go to the king and ask permission to build something to initiate something to like build a city whatever and and so the sin of sargon is about these people that decided to do something without the king's permission and so that's the sin of mm. sargon and they were of one mouth they're of one mouth that's what they're called that's the sin of sargon is being one mouth. So I would say that as you know you're relating this to exile, Babylon, they're they're the empire, they're the enemy being in front to that enemy and how they basically are, are juxtaposing that with being you know in front towards God. So th- so they're saying don't be you know against God, but be against I guess the the right enemy. Um, mm-hmm. otherwise we won't be unified um, in our in our tribes in our nation. I would say that that's the that's the I guess the background that I wanted to give to the to the story. I mean the, there's a lot of other like ideas and thoughts and and interpretations of this story, but many of them do land on the multilinguistic conclusion, Um, multilingualism, that is the curse. And if you go there, if you spend too much time there, you end up really in some, I would say some very dark, I guess, places and and places that really go against other parts of Other parts of scripture. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, ultimately, you could use, I guess, the idea of the Tower of Babel um, and multilingualism and the foreigner to start a new pure nation that you start to take people and remove them from the nation to get a more pure nation. With a more pure race of people, I guess, quote unquote, Um, and that's where we have problems with uh, tyrants, dictators, and then eventually genocide and such in the Holocaust. So, so taken to you know the 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 fear of the foreigner or xenophobia, I guess taken to you know its end is is it results in violence. So. So I would say we have to be very careful in concluding certain things about uh, the Bible um, and about this dispersion, about this, you know, multilingualism. I guess curse conclusion. What other conclusions could you come to with this story, the Tower of Babel? What do you, what do you think are some other ones?
1: I mean, I can share what I've been taught growing up, um, yeah. but that is. Still focused on the language, and we've already sort of debunked that um, but I have always heard it as a celebration of diversity, okay, like yes, yes, a boundary was crossed, but um like it was a gift that the nations couldn't communicate and collaborate because then they couldn't build a tower again.
2: Mm. There's a problem with that, but yes. <laughs>
1: Yeah, but you asked for other <laughs> interpretations.
0: Right. <laughs> right. Uh, can you flip over to Exodus 24? Mm.
2: Hold on. You got it?
0: Yeah. Moses came and told the people all the Lord's words and all the case laws, all the people answered in unison, everything that the Lord has said, we will do. So they said in unison, Moses then wrote down all of the Lord's words. He got up early in the morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain. He set up 12 sacred stone pillars for this 12 tribes of Israel. He appointed certain young Israelite men to offer entire burnt offerings and slaughter oxen as well as, and well being sacrificed to the Lord. So the idea of being in unison and being one mouthed, that's I want to be very careful and explain that just a little bit more to tease that out, because having unified words and a unified voice is very different than being unified against and so so there's a, there's a meaning to this one mouth or one lipped that is like subversive or overthrowing or just doing our own thing against god and when you see the 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 Adam and Eve narrative where they're standing there at this tree with the fruit and they're having this negotiation, should we, should we not do it, should we do this, should we not do it, okay go ahead and do it, Um, they're standing in one mouth. So the idea of one mouth to sin against or to do something against is what this actually is is referring to. I, I could I could see that that you know that interpretation, I guess, is less um dramatic. I guess it's less, uh, I mean, it doesn't explain certain historical ideas or historical things that we well it doesn't have explain, today, like multiple languages. Yeah. what'd you say?
2: It doesn't explain the chapter before it.
0: right. And so we so we we don't have any conclusions of like all the languages of the world or or something something like that. Uh, so it's it's less attractive, yet it's definitely more meaningful when you start looking at it in light of, standing in unison with the chesed versus against the chesed. Um, So I would say the Tower of Babel, again, has nothing to do really with the tower, has very little to do with Babylon, and has much more to do with uh, you know working against God or something against mm-hmm. God. So this dispersion happens where they don't understand one another. And metaphorically, multilingualism metaphorically becomes that, where we don't understand one another. We've lost our unified vision, our unified voice, our unified people with God. All of a sudden we become, you know, we, we're, not, we're not on the same page and, and we're not seeing the collective as, again, We're not loving our neighbor. We're not caring for those that are around us. It becomes very I versus we, and culturally, um, the I and the we are very important concepts. And so we're going to cover that um, here in a a later story. Any other thoughts on the Tower of Babel? Uh, Just as we conclude, as we conclude this.
2: To go a little bit more into the weeds, uh, yeah, please. Nimrod, yeah, supposed to be the the ruler that commissioned the build of the Tower of Babel. Mm -hmm. That it says that nowhere. Mm. Yeah, and so is this this ancient tradition that we have that we place in the text.
0: Well, we do that a lot with texts, as we just come under assumptions and. Conclusions about text that it's just not there. think about though the the conclusions that we came to with the Tower of Babel and how much more meaningful that conclusion can be in life versus just cursing our multilingualism and thinking it's a bad thing and then for a good, other for a good thing for diversity yeah. Uh, and, and so think about like, a more meaningful, loving, caring, I guess, translation of, of this Scripture. I think it is, it is more meaningful. It makes sense, and we're going over stories that make no sense. The traditional translation of the Tower of Babel makes no sense, especially in context with what we've been reading about. Like Noah, and I mean, even back into the creation story, and what we're going to cover with Moses, and and all the other stories in between.
2: Yeah,
0: it, you know, just to just to conclude that this is the you know the curse of multilingualism. It just that that doesn't make sense. That or conclusion. the blessing.
2: I was taught it was the blessing as well. Oh,
0: the blessing. And that's just spinning it. That's just kind of like you know, polishing the turd of translation to me where, you know, now you're just going to, Oh, it's not a curse because we can't say multilingualism's a curse. So we're just going to impose the word blessing on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's still just a bad translation. It's still a bad conclusion to a story that, that I guess we have, you know, we have, we have learned for a long time or we've, yeah. you know, sat with for a long time, but just remember, that every time you see in Scripture, when the divine and human beings are not in sync, boundaries are crossed, something happens. So, so uh, Adam and Eve, boundaries across something happens. Uh, basically, all the people of the earth during <laughs> Noah's time, boundaries across, something happens. Um, and so, just know that that when th- when boundaries are crossed with the divine, something is going to something is going to occur. All right. What's our next story that doesn't make sense? Um,
1: Go ahead, Abraham,
0: Abraham. So
1: first of all, Abraham's probably not a real person.
0: Oh, Shereya said it. <laughs> Bam. I mean, just no lead in. No, soft. Nope. just put nope. on boxing gloves and hit me in the face.
1: Um, I think one thing that, that? yeah, well, first of all, I'm not sure that we have any archaeological evidence, so that'd be a big one. Um, but then another thing, Abraham's name, um, means the father of multitudes and that just sounds really mythic. So it seems to lend to this idea that it's a myth.
0: Yeah. Okay. I
2: I mean, the writer had to point to that the nation of Israel had to come from somebody or something. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it was his father figure. What are you mm-hmm. gonna give him? Give him the name Father.
1: Right. And where where did he come from, Jake? Uh,
2: he came from Ur, which was also Mesopotamia. So a lot of which our, was
1: also this was Babylon, Babylon, wasn't it? Ba-
2: Babylon. Yeah. So the the story of of Abraham, of Adam, of Moses is all exiting out of Babylon, out of slavery, um, back to the promised land or back or to the promised land mm-hmm. to um to mimic and mirror what the people were making the decision of at the time, um, whether to stay or to go back to the promised land. And you see like in Esther and Nehemiah as well, there's this idea that either you're going to stay in Babylon or you're going to go back and help build the temple or you're going to mm-hmm. stay in Babylon or you're going to help go back to the promised land and build, rebuild the wall. And so maintain your nationhood of Israel. And so when, when you look at all of those parallels together um, later on, we're also going to talk about, I don't know if we are talk about Egypt or no. Eventually. Yeah. Eventually. I mean the Egyptian story of going down into Egypt because there's a famine with Abraham, not, not Jacob and his descendants, but with Abraham, and then there's plagues that happen at the Pharaoh's household and they're expelled out of Egypt, out of slavery. Mm. Our captivity with riches. Today. With Egypt's
0: with, riches. With vast wealth. The idea is that they built a temple out of it, supposedly.
2: Not Abraham, no.
0: That's I meant I meant later on. Yeah, mm-hmm. so but these Moses, are parallel stories. In the Moses yeah. story, they
2: but in the in Abraham. Isn't that story, funny?
0: I thought you were talking about the different story. It's the exact same story. It's
2: the exact same <laughs> story. So it's it's retold over and over again. So in the Abraham story, the riches out of Egypt builds the nation. Hmm. In the Moses story, the riches out of Egypt builds the temple. Right or the tabernacle.
0: Tabernacle and then. Yeah. So, so uh, Abraham comes out of this place called Ur, leaves Ur and receives this blessing and is told to go to this land and out of basically this land, which is the same land, that blessing is produced and many, many nations are blessed through Abraham. So out of this Exodus, we see blessing blessing occur. So we gotta find water. We gotta find some splitting of water. We have to see the earth undo a little bit if that story is is similar. What what I think that there's there's more more to unpack with the Abraham story is there were actually there were actually Jewish or Hebrew landowners, basically that stayed in Judah during the Babylonian captivity. And so there were, there were problems between those people. And then you have then all the exilic people coming back and then there was problems with, okay, who gets this land? Right. And so there was negotiations and problems and tensions between all of those people eventually. And so this story is seen uh, by a lot of people as birthed out of those tentious, contentious conversations and problems that they had with land. And so the whole land idea or you're going to take this land and you're going to take this land and the division of land eventually is, is seen, I guess, within that context. But most people believe that this story, um, I guess not most people, I, I think that most scholars and high criticism believe that this story is is constructed to relate to a historical era. It's not a historical piece, and and so it's made to relate to historical ideas as they are in exile, and so the idea of exile is still um, captured within within this story.
2: Is the exilic pattern the the entire Old Testament? The the first two books, especially, is written in a in an exilic pattern get thrown out dispersed come back rebuild get thrown out disperse come back so we have
0: some problems because because the the challenges with with abraham's life as it's told this author is is saying that abraham sarah's barren she can't have children so now we're going to try to figure out how to have children. We have to have, you know, some, some sons around to, to pass the fortune down. Mm-hmm. And so there is no son being birthed. And so we're going to go find, you know, a, a maidservant type person to have a child with. And that, that person is Hagar. Hagar um, is Egyptian correct Mm
1: -hmm.
0: yeah so Hagar is the Egyptian maid servant and then uh, they have a child by the name of Ishmael and Sarah has a problem now with that obviously there's some challenges there maybe some it said that she was jealous and so to flee for their lives Ishmael and Hagar are sent out away to this other place and it's said that God also blesses the, Abraham, excuse me, um, Ishmael and Hagar that a great nation, they would also produce a great nation. Now I want to be very mm-hmm. clear is Mohammed later comes along and claims that that great nation is the Arab nation and many Muslim people believe that. I, I don't necessarily subscribe to that because I do not believe that this story really has any genealogical aspects to it. And so so you re- really can't claim that that would just be some kind of some kind of guess. But uh, you have this in in well at the time enslaved Egyptian woman is that basically surrogate mother to to Ishmael now casted out in this place but they also received this blessing and a spring of water then is seen at the center of this this story so what do we know about hebrew stories and water is that there's some kind of salvific um, some kind of redemption some kind of blessing grace that's the chesed is coming down on Ishmael and and Hagar, the mom. So you can conclude as, as Hagar is this poor person who is just an outcast with an outcast type child, that this has some messianic um, pr- way pre-Christ type of mentality. And I'm talking about Jewish Messiah thinking. Um, that this has some messianic overtones uh to it that actually ishmael is the messiah and that hagar is the mother of of the messiah showing that messiah comes from humble places messiah comes from um the margins just like ruth came from the margins just like any person that does great things comes from comes from the margins
2: and i mean the story of ruth and esther ruth is ruth is a midianite right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yes which would i think is a more it's a more biblical point that it is she is a descendant of the fish male
0: well yeah yeah, you could you could try to make that claim as well. But we do see there's a problem here. Um, as Abraham is so willing to cast away Ishmael and Hagar, then now that there's going to be a reckoning at the top of some other mountain, and that's going to be the sacrifice of what, as, as God finds Ishmael, Uh, dear to his heart. Abraham finds his son, Isaac, dear to his heart. And so now we're going to have this this negotiated conversation up on a mountain um, that is the sacrifice of, of Isaac. So do we have any other thoughts about the sacrifice of Isaac besides it's just a story that is put alongside the Ishmael Hagar story?
2: Not right now. I do, but I'm, they're not coming up right now.
0: Okay. Um, Shreya?
1: Well, there's a parallel there um, between Abraham sending Ishmael off to die um, and God commanding Isaac to die.
0: Right. Any, any other though, like outside of those, like that thought because that's a new thought, I think, for a lot of people. They see these stories of Ishmael and Hagar. Like, as soon as the Bible says, well, they casted them away, okay, we don't have to worry about them anymore. So mm-hmm. so that's what we do with that story. We don't spend enough time with Ishmael and Hagar. Like, why not? And I think that there's definitely some parallels uh, to that.
1: Probably because they're marginalized and that's what we do with marginalized people anyway.
2: Right.
1: Right. totally. Um, so I have two thoughts, um, and I'm trying to decide which one to go first. Okay. Um, so there is a tradition of interpreting Hagar as a black woman. Mm. Um, and that's not, in the text specifically, um, we know she's Egyptian, we know she's a servant or more likely a slave. Right. Um, and so um, enslaved people in the US, um, African-American enslaved people have identified with Hagar as a character um, because her experience mirrored their own. And mm. so It's an important voice to listen to um, when it comes to our interpretations, because it allows us to see the text, um, especially as the three of us are white folks. It allows us to see the text through another's experience that we might shy away from because of our nation's history. Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. Absolutely. And I, I think that it's sometimes hard to look at that story just like it's hard to look at our history okay. and actually absorb um that we did these things just okay. like it's hard to absorb abraham did those things casted them yes. away and so it's hard to just say wow father abraham had many sons had many sons had father we sing this song like abraham is this you know golden child But he did throw away people Mm -hmm. and to not acknowledge that as that is in parallel with the Isaac story, Mm -hmm. it's just like trying to forget or just wash away that that form of history. But if we would let us sit with that story a little bit and then see, okay, well, what came out of Isaac? Problems after problems after problems after problems, <laughs> right? I mean you have a yeah. just a litany of problems. Um so so that litany of problems, I guess, comes out of Isaac, but what comes out of Ishmael? This says it there, it's pretty simple. A great nation. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just simple as that, you know, which you look yeah. at the rest of the old Testament and you see all that chock full of challenges that, that is, you know, the rest of the books. But then you just see this one simple statement that says a great nation came out of Ishmael.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, talk about like, that's just an amazing conclusion to your story. We don't even have to talk about it, it's so amazing, right? <laughs> so I just, see, I just see those two stories in parallel. One continues, the other one just kind of stops. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, this really has to do with, I guess, faithfulness with like what's going on in Abraham's heart. Because you have Abraham's heart, it's like, dude, I mean, you are really unfaithful to these people and you have selfish, selfish ambitions um and you cast away these people so he was unfaithful to trying to be faithful to what he thought he needed to be faithful to he was unfaithful to um this other and uh i think we just modernize that use that as a metaphor i think that that's a an amazing metaphor for our life is as we're trying to like think we're doing the right thing um, we end up completely doing uh the wrong thing well diving a little bit deeper i think that there's another story that's emerging let me pull open um my notes here because
1: okay while you're pulling them up i'm gonna say one more thing
0: yeah please um
1: hagar is the only human to name god
0: yes that is such an important part i had in my notes too thank you for bringing that up (laughs) Hagar, say that again. And
1: she's she's the only person to give God a name. Everywhere else, God names God's self. But here, Hagar gives God a name.
0: So let's just steep with that for a minute. Let's put that scripture up so people can read it. Because that is a that is a beautiful... Help me out. Uh, it's uh, chapter 16. 13, uh, Verse 13. Okay, thank you.
2: Keep talking about it
0: oh
1: yep so it's a marginalized woman woman yeah who names god
0: right hagar named the lord who spoke to her so so that is never seen anywhere else in scripture but right here hagar named the lord who spoke to her you are l roy because she said can i still see after he saw me Therefore, that that well is called Bir Lahai Roy. It's the well between Kadesh and Bered. Hagar gave birth to a son for Abram, and Abram named him Ishmael. So can I see? The Lord, basically, the Lord that I see. So Hagar... The Lord that sees. The Lord that sees. Um, Hagar is the only person in the bible that gives god a name which i think that's a beautiful beautiful Mm -hmm. conclusion to that story Mm -hmm. beautiful all right what's our next story that doesn't make sense
1: um Um, so this kind of it it's a interlude on the on the way into sodom and Gomorrah. so we're not quite there um but there's the the story Of the so God makes a covenant with Abraham, right? That he's going to be the father of many nations, he's going to have a son, all of that stuff. Um, and these three messengers Mm -hmm. show up and they bring that blessing to Abraham. Um, Sarah makes a feast, they eat a ton of food, um, they talk about Isaac's birth, and it it displays Abram's hospitality to these unknown strangers. Um, and that is contrasted to then you have um, two visitors who go and visit Sodom and Gomorrah and um, the whole town tries to rape them and that is the opposite of hospitality.
0: <laughs> right, right can i back up a little bit because i just pulled open my notes and i went oh i want to make sure that i clarify because that's such an important part about the naming of god the naming of god the actual name that sarah excuse me that hagar gives god is the god who sees me Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's the actual translation he sees the marginalized me, so mm-hmm. Abraham is taught a lesson here because he is the curator of the or the the caretaker rather of the Chesed, the loving kindness of God that endures forever. So he is the caretaker of the Chesed. So Abraham becomes like a godlike figure. But there's some challenges here that Abraham in this narrative is having is that he does not see that he does not see. So he's being taught these mm-hmm. lessons along the way of open your eyes and see. Um and so now we're here at this this lot uh this lot story. A lot of people think that let's just kind of blow this one up. A lot of people think that Sodom's sin is homosexuality. And right. that is not true that Sodom's sin right. is not Homosexuality, um, the sin that they were enduring or or doing was the lack of hospitality. They did not love the neighbor. They did not love the other. They did not even love each other. So they didn't have hospitality towards one another. So that is that is the ultimate sin that is of selfishness. There's a selfishness at the center of of Sodom that we have to that we have to unpack um, a little bit in this story. So so there's some there's some challenges, I think, with uh, th- the translation of this story because because as God is raining down fury on this area on this land, the tradition, also the tradition of the story is Lot's wife turns around, and then turns to a pillar of salt. Um, after our in deep dive of pre-work, I really think that that is a first level, what I'll call skim interpretation of this scripture, where you, you, if you do a little bit deeper study, you cannot really come to that conclusion. You you can't come to really.
2: She was turned into a pillar of salt. Pillar
0: of salt. You can't come to that conclusion definitely, Um, but there are some other conclusions that carry at least the same weight, if not more weight, um, with this with this scripture. So, so. In their lack of hospitality, uh, let's let's talk more about this story, Jake. Why don't you unpack the story of what's happening in Sodom, and why do they run?
2: Why did Lot and Abraham run?
0: Right. Yeah. Uh, like what? Is, what were they? What? Just kind of unpack what happened.
2: The the three visitors go into Sodom, and, and they're looking for just forty faithful people but all they find is lot and his family right so they go in and they go in the lot and they and lot bakes them or lot and it makes them food and mm-hmm. as you read it it it's they even bake unleavened bread
0: mm.
2: right and so the last time that we saw sorry, in the future not the last time the future that you're gonna see unleavened bread again. <laughs> is going to mean when Israelites flee out of Egypt. Mm-hmm. It's right. also an important, an important uh, motif to, to dig into. The, the town comes and asks for the men so they can know them intimately. Um, and it's just the dexposition of hospitality I don't. A lot of people put put sex as the main emphasis of the story, but it, it definitely is not. It's, it's more about opening opening your doors and accepting the stranger. Um, we see marginalized people with with Hagar and Ishmael, and so the same narrative should continue through, right? Right. Um, so these people are vulnerable. They're in that in the house. Lot is fighting against them, saying. Um, we're not going to give them to you and then they flee out of Sodom.
0: Right. So as they're fleeing, they're they're told if you then open up Genesis 19, let's look in 17-ish, 14 or no. No, 17. Okay. 19:17. I think it's 1917.
1: Mm-hmm. Don't look back.
0: Yeah, is that it? Yeah, and it came to yep. pass. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Go ahead and read that, that scripture there.
1: Just verse 17. After getting them out, the men said, save your lives, don't look back, and don't stay in the valley. Escape to the mountains so that you are not swept away.
0: Okay, so they're told... To escape, they're told to run or they're told to leave and to not look back or better is to not look behind you. Um. So Lot's wife looks behind her, looks mm-hmm. upon the city. So now go to uh, Genesis same chapter um, 15 and 16. 25 and
1: 26?
0: Hmm. Sorry, 1915 and 6. When dawn broke, the messengers urged Lot, get up and take your wife and your two daughters who are here so that you are not swept away because of the evil in the city. He hesitated, but because the Lord intended to save him, the men grabbed him. Uh, I I lost it. What are you you looking for? 25 and 26. But because the Lord intended to save him, the men grabbed him his wife, two daughters, um, by the hand, took him out and left him outside the city. Um, and so the idea of of hesitated, um, go back to, is it, is it, uh, I'm sorry, 17. 17.
1: Where they say, don't look back.
0: Save your lives. Don't look like, don't stay in the valley, escape to the mountains so that you are not swept away. The idea that, uh, the, the idea that Lot hesitated and he basically ignores ignores something there as well and faces um, no punishment. So, mm. but mm, then if so. you if you go farther, Abraham also looks at the city, um, and you look in later. He looks upon the city in the smoke and the timbers that are that are burning. So Abraham mm-hmm. does not receive punishment um, as well. So that's th- verse so we,
1: 27.
0: Yeah, so go up to 27 really quick. Abraham set out early for the place where he had stood with the Lord and looked over Sodom and Gomorrah and over all the land of the valley. He saw the smoke from the land rise like the smoke from a kiln. So let's do a little bit of uh, Hebrew work. Let's do it quickly mm-hmm. so that we can get through um, this. So they're running, they're escaping, and there is another ter- interpretation to this that I really want to genuinely um, consider. Is basically in the in the verse twenty five and twenty six of this story, he basically is annihilating these two cities and this, this land, this entire plain it's called, and all the inhabitants of the city, all the citizens of the city, and all the vegetation of the ground are wiped clean. And Lot's wife looked back and blank a pillar of salt. So this idea that she turned into a pillar of salt or something turned into the pillar of salt. So Jake and Shreya, take it from here. What do you think Mm -hmm. of this, this scripture?
1: Yeah. Okay. So the verb highlighted there is to look. And then this is his wife. So Lot's wife looked behind them yeah that's still part of behind them and she saw no that's it became
2: oh yeah sorry it became so
1: it's it. she became it's a feminine verb we'll hold that thought that it's a feminine verb and just finish the sentence real quick and that's where we have pillar and salt. so that she became most of the time The she, people assume the she is Lot's wife. And I would guess that that's a problem with English translation. Um, But if you're looking at the Hebrew, let's go up to um, where it talks about the cities. Mm. Yeah. So this is also a feminine word. So the question, like, the the text is a little bit ambiguous. Is that she became referring to Lot's wife, or is it referring to the cities? And depending on which you choose, it has consequences.
0: Right. It actually radically changes the mm-hmm. focus of the story.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Because now, for a long period of time, we see that these, the translation of this has been that Lot's wife, you know, I'm sure that, you know, the big idea of Tales did something on this, I'm sure. But but Lot, Lot's wife turns into a pillar of salt, which then that puts the consequence on Lot's wife. Mm-hmm. That puts a consequence on her versus the consequence on, mm-hmm. on the lack the of hospitality. Right. And that's what we do with scripture a lot of times. We're always looking for that. I don't wanna do anything, so let's just put the problem on somebody else, right? So the problem is not my lack of hospitality. My problem is Lot's wife wasn't quick enough and looked back because she thought she was losing ground or whatever the thought is. That that, 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 we gotta blame Lot's wife. But what's really sad about scripture is, People like theologians and me and 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 such, we look through um, lenses that degrade or oppress or reduce women and lift men, and so we're constantly in that process in our brains of like reducing women so we sexualize women in scripture we you know because mary magdalene has to be a prostitute so we we you know prostitute women in scripture and we put them in the lesser it's a misogynistic view of scripture so when we look at lot's wife you know through the that lens of course it has to be it can't be the cities it has to be lots wife that actually lots wife turning to salt makes absolutely no sense why would that make sense there's just nothing in scripture that Even backs that, that up man. and so so lots wife becoming salt the city's becoming a garrison they call it a garrison cuz that translation can be a garrison that that it becomes this this instead of pillar becomes a garrison is a military term and that military term then can be put on the cities that 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 she does not become a pillar of salt the city is a garrison of of salt so all power and sulfur and salt yeah 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 all of it raining all these toxic chemicals. <laughs> the city is destroyed in just a pile of rubble. Let's just call it that. And so all power and all authority is in rubble. Is in is in uh, in a rat and and that's a radical I guess move away from away from uh a traditional translation. And that's not just a feeling like that just doesn't feel better because because we're going to now move forward. And if you look at the next scene, we got some really weird stuff that happens with with lot. And so what happens, Shreya, in this next?
1: Well, before we get there, I mean, you were talking about how we tend to blame the woman in the story and that's um, the cultural lens that we came from. How many of us never even noticed that both lot and Abraham, the two men in the story did the same exact thing, right? Like we just brush past that and don't even see it because of our biases.
0: Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. Both of them, both, Lot and Abraham, we just covered those verses. Did something that was commanded not to do, and you <laughs> they know, they're still standing. So, so why? So, it, honestly, just to piggyback on your point there, sure. It, it just makes no sense. And I don't think the Bible is meant to make no sense. That's the problem that I'm I'm seeing with some of these stories that we translate through that kind of lens. It just doesn't make sense, and and we have to we have to start looking at the Bible um, as a sensible piece of literature, God's word. See, I think that I think that placing the challenge on that. The, inhospitable attitude pridefulness Mm -hmm. selfishness of sodom that's where the blame needs to sit not on lot's wife that makes Mm -hmm. more biblical sense that actually makes more sense to be god's word than lot's wife turning to salt um okay so so let's just now lots wife is not this you know happy go lucky little house on the prairie mom (laughs) type of personality i mean she is a sodomite lot is the one that is you know he's he's right there with her so let's what happens
1: yeah um so the family flees to the mountains um they find a cave there and lots two daughters look around and from their perspective, the whole world is devastated. Um, Right. And that's a really risky place for them to be.
0: Um, Sounds like Noah.
1: Yeah, but like, especially for women who are unmarried, who do not have children, um, as soon as their folks die, they're on their own. Um, So this is a question of survival for them. They look around, they have no options. There are no husbands there to give them sons. And so they come up with a plan to get their dad drunk and have sex with him so that they can have sons who will then take care of them. Hmm. Lot's wife doesn't occur in the text. Yeah. Like it doesn't mention her, (laughs) but if she's not dead, she's probably somewhere.
0: Well, they say she's in the cave. Some commentators say she's in the cave complicit.
1: That's super awkward.
0: That is super awkward. But, you know, we live in a different time. Many, when you're not the center Mm -hmm. of the story, especially a woman in Hebrew text, there's a lot of times that the woman is not mentioned. And so just because she's not here in this story, you cannot at all draw the conclusion that, you know, she's dead. Because at that point, you know, if you advance forward in the New Testament, there weren't a lot, a lot of people, you know, around when when uh, when things were happening, and we draw conclusions that they were around. So, so in this text, that Lot's wife not being present doesn't mean that um, that doesn't mean that she's not there, but shows the shows maybe that she's even more of a sodomite than we thought because the gaze of looking at her city right there's a difference between what she looked at you know her quick glance back right her quick glance back probably could be interpreted as my city is falling apart and being destroyed this rich city that i was a part of is being um is being like just like gone like it's being taken away abraham's gaze he's the caretaker of the hesed so his gaze is different his gaze is the smoking embers and possibly just looking at you know the people now are gone so the attitude of lot's wife and abraham are very different um in this in this story which then you know her being complicit that now you know, weird things are happening. Um, it's the I and the we in, in the in the language that I would say that that moving from I to we, Abraham is starting to move that direction. He and and Lot's wife is not there yet, but but Abraham is starting to move to the we, the collective common good where he's going to start seeing the common good that he didn't see before like with Ishmael and Hagar he didn't see that before didn't see it before with you know much of life before this point but now i think abraham is going to start moving into into the we and in culture there's there's basic institutions and the basic institution of morality. A lot of people think, and that's why we focus on the sexuality of of Sodom, because that's where we place morality. But God shifts that morality in the, in, in our human cultural system, in our cultural system of morality, it shifted to hospitality. You didn't love the other. You didn't take care of the foreigner. You didn't give to those that actually needed. And so so Sodom is seen as a, as a society of I um, versus we and the common good. So, so, so basically like in Christianity, if you advance forward, that we lose our I status. It's not an i life. It's sell your possessions, take care of the poor, hospitality. It's clothe the naked, feed the hungry, house the houseless. That's hospitality. Jesus feeding the thousands, that's hospitality. Jesus actually reinstating people that, you know, the crazy guy or the 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 person that, you know, doesn't have um like sight or, or hearing, or can walk, pick up your mat and walk, that's reinstating them in society and loving the neighbor. And that's hospitality. So, so in our, in our basic institution of morality, I wish that the church could redirect a little bit. And, and I still, I still think we should be, you know, sleeping around with every, you know, Every person on the planet, right? That's not healthy, uh, and also <laughs> hospitality and inhospitality is not healthy either because it because it removes it 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 takes the collective us and makes it the individual me and there's consequences to that that we will be destroyed like Sodom if we continue down that path if we're not caring about. The uh, the common good. Well, Lot's wife has to learn um, that, and Abraham is learning the Hasid. He's learning that God's love endures forever, and now he's seeing for the other, and for the foreigner, and those that that are that are outside. And that's an exciting movement for for him. All right, any concluding thoughts on this? These are great. Did we learn anything new today?
2: I think the Pillar of Saul, that was a new one for me. Yeah, yeah.
1: me too.
0: That was that was unbelievable to me. Absolutely unbelievable. Um, I enjoyed the Tower of Babel because it was a deconstruction of, you know, just that common translation. Um, but yeah, I'm of that same camp. Well, it's a blessing. Multilingualism is a blessing. So we just, you know, turn the dial a little bit. Um, what okay. you said about, uh, Ishmael, excuse me, Hagar and being, um, a person of color. I really, I really thought deeply about that and how that, how that, um, definitely is a cultural, um, there's cultural implications to that story. Um, that I didn't consider before that. So good stuff. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, with that, thanks for joining. Thanks for participating. Thanks for all the hard work on those stories. That was really good. The stories that make no sense, I hope they make a little more sense um, after tonight. All right. With that, good night, everybody. Thanks for joining us.